It's story time at Disc Radio. And there's a story coming from us to you. Hello there and welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Connor McMullen, and I just wanted to give a little note before this beautiful conversation starts. Our guests and I, we have very similar research and reading interests. So sometimes the words and the concepts and the theories get a little big and complicated, but don't worry because I think our guest is one of the best people I've ever met at taking these complex ideas and making them useful, usable and digestible for all sorts of audiences. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. And today I'm here to bring you a very special conversation with someone I respect and learn so much from, my good friend, Glenda. Hi, Glenda, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you today, Connor? Oh, I am excellent. It's it's almost the end of the week, a nice weekend. We are hoping for good weather, so let's see if we can get lucky. And you? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. I've been on quarantine a bit, and it's nice to be home and settled in, so this is just pandemic world. Yeah, the the new normal, unfortunately. I think Mm -hmm. I'm finally also starting to adapt to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think any time that I'm on a call with with Glenda, I'm always really enjoying it and and learning so much. Unfortunately, the rest of the world does not get to to share in our wonderful calls that we've had and all of our good discussions. Um, so I was wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit to our audience. Uh, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, I'm happy to. So my name is Glenda O. Young, and I'm the executive director of the Human Systems Dynamics Institute. I'm located in Circle Pines, Minnesota, which is about 20 miles north of Minneapolis and St. Paul on a little lake where the sun is shining today and the autumn is almost upon us. So I began working with complexity in human systems in 1986. So I've been at this business for a very long time. And I came to complexity with the question, how can I solve intractable problems? And then I realized intractable problems can't be solved, but they can be shifted. So since that time, I've been studying many different threads of the complexity sciences and mathematics and looking for hints and clues and cues there about how people can see patterns clearly in the systems where they're working seek to understand them in a variety of ways, and then to take action so that we are constantly engaged in the process of making things better, more coherent, insofar as we can understand them. 
And so this institute that I lead started in 2003. And since then, we've trained and consulted and done research and development. And we have a network of about 900 associates around the world who are engaged in many different fields of work, all of which apply these principles of complexity that we've discovered to their work to help people cope with intractable issues. Everything from individual coaching and development to team development, to organizations, to community transformation. And now certainly we're working on global issues where intractable is writ large on the world stage. Um, so what else might you like to know about me? I was born in happy Texas. What a place. Probably an important fact. Um, yeah. And I'm just very happy to be here because as you'll see in my story, my passion is to share this work. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, I wonder if for our audience, you maybe could give one or two examples of what one of these intractable problems is. Mm, so currently we're working with the uh, 11 poorest counties in Georgia, in the United States, <clears throat> trying to help them develop collaboratives across their counties to support health equity and racial justice. And so this means bringing together educators, healthcare systems, businesses, schools into collaboratives to be able to set conditions so that the people in the community, whatever their economic and social status, that they're able to be all more well and healthy. So that's one uh, rather intractable issue. A second is that I'm working with a financial institution in Canada who um, it's a membership organization in a very homogeneous demographic space, and yet they're very sensitive to racism and structural racism. And so they are trying to figure out how they, as a financial institution, as a membership institution in a very homogeneous environment, can recognize and respond to their own innate biases and prejudices and those that they've built into policy in the organization. And so it's an anti-racism with a very interesting context. Um, and a third that we're working with has to do with climate change. And so this is, this is a project that we have worked with recently and will again at the intersection of environmental sciences and public health looking at global policy in response to the pandemic to see how the complex system of environment and the complex system of public health intersect with the current pandemic and viruses that are likely to emerge in the future. So those are the kinds of intractable issues that we're looking at. And education reform, agricultural transformation, so there is no lack of uh, critical issues. Peace and justice is another one that we've worked with, conflict resolution. Yeah, I've been, I've been working a lot with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals recently. And I think your list and that list and any other list of 
intractable problems, uh, grand challenges, uh, super wicked problems. They all they all fill that that headspace that now we are becoming so familiar with. Um, yeah, and yeah. It, well, and one of the things that has happened, Connor, is that we've gotten so good at solving problems, problems that have a beginning and an ending and a root cause. We've gotten really, really good at that. And so what we have left on our hands are the ones that are not problems, but they're patterns that we may be able to shift, but they don't have solutions. And that's the space where we play. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's also one of my favorite spaces to play. Um, and that's one of my favorite spaces to bring stories, because I think stories are a great tool, not only for solving those basic beginning, middle, end problems, but also for helping us to understand uh, these big intractable problems um, that in, the, in a lot of ways represent human life today and, and human life as it's always been. Um, so before I get distracted by these really interesting challenges of financial institutions trying to make themselves better in, in a unique context um, with 100 questions on that way, uh, I've already asked you a, a big question. Um, and that's that's the question of our show. Uh, what story changed your life? And I know that question has has seeded another question that you have for me. Yes, it's quite it was quite interesting. In just reflecting on the story and thinking about it, I was chatting with my sister and thought partner and housemate and uh, co-author Royce Holiday about, oh, I'm going to share a story that changed my life. And she immediately thought that it was a story about a moment when my life changed. But when you asked me the question, I thought it was about what story have I received from elsewhere that was a catalyst for a change in my life. And so I don't know what you mean. Hmm. I think my natural instinct as a storyteller is to immediately say, what's the difference? Um, because that moment you received that story, that ex storytelling experience happened to you. Um, and if you had read that story or heard that story in a different time in a different place, that change probably wouldn't have been the same. So something about that experience was really unique. Um, whether you want to associate that with the specific story that sparked that experience or the context around that experience or how that experience was conveyed, I think is, is interesting to, to wonder what, what drives that. Um, you know, because I, I have certain books that I've read when I was young and I thought, God, this is the greatest thing ever. It blew my mind and I just totally fell in love with it and 10 years later picked it up and flipped through it in a day and said, oh, that was okay. Um, so something changed. Uh, and, and it wasn't the story because that book is the same, uh, but something about me changed. So, so I think indeed the, the prompt is maybe intentionally a bit ambiguous, um, but I'm curious to kind of hear where you guys landed as well, um, or if you're still bouncing it back and forth around the house. <laughs> yeah, well, we kind of ended up in different places, and yet I realized as I was taking my understanding of the question and the story received story that changed my life, that as I reflected on it, lots of stories about my life emerged. And so it is true. I think it's a very generative 
space for that question where you look at it and see one thing and look another way and see something else, which is the nature of this complexity that we're living in. So, so we landed somewhere in the middle too, Connor. Oh, that's great. And I wondered if you could share with us one of those threads or the central thread that kind of emerged from this generative experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one that she and I uh, live with and delight in, and it really feeds our work. And it's that the conversation was about my understanding where she was coming from and what was a story that might be one about a change in her life and her trying to understand what where I am and a story that I might have received. And so the difference in the perspectives really generated a quite interesting conversation, which will, I'm sure, continue. And that's one of the things that we know for sure about generative complexity is that it's the difference where the energy lies and the possibility for evolution lies in the difference. And so that was the story of that conversation and most of the conversations Royce and I have. Yeah, I think that's for me also. When whenever I'm in a team, uh, team situation, I often often bring up the idea of friction. Um, that we need that friction to make that heat to start the fire. Because if everything is always smooth and agreeing, then there's the the creativity is going to disappear after a while. Um, you know that necessity is the mother of all invention, and when you need to to overcome those differences. Um, you'll find a way to do it if if you really have the time and energy and opportunity matters. Um, so yeah, I, I also like to have these um, like to have these sparring partners to go around and around with. It it makes life rich. And so I'm wondering then if you if you settled on an answer because I know when we talked about it before you had said right away a story popped to your mind. Um, and so I'm wondering if you've settled on that story as an answer to the big question or have a totally different story. Um, yeah, it's been so interesting, Connor, because that one popped to mind so quickly. I was a little skeptical about it and thought, oh, surely there's something that would be more interesting. And every time I've thought about it, I've come right back to that story. So it must be the right one. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so that intuitive uh, muse that spoke to me in that moment, I think, was carrying some great wisdom. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that the first instinct is to kind of push it away and say, well, there must be something more there. Um, but the story has a, has a spark that always brings you back to it, uh, which, is, yeah. which is nice to hear. Which is one of the core themes of my story. Oh, wow. <laughs> so would you like to share your story with us today i would love to share my story today and i am all ears and a cup of tea okay so the story begins with a row of people who are chained with their heads held straight in front of them and there are several of them but they don't know how many because they can only see the ones on either side and in front of them, there are characters that are moving around, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Some of the characters are large, some are small. And even though they can't see each other, people can talk to each other. And they begin to 
reflect on the characters and talk about who's winning and who's fastest and who's biggest and who's their favorite character on the wall. And so that's how they spend their time. When they're awake, they're observing these characters on the wall. Well, one, our hero, one day someone comes and unchains him, releases his head and allows him to look around. And he sees that other people are chained. He didn't realize he was. He thought that was just the way things were. And he realized that this row of people are chained. And he thinks, oh, that's very interesting. Reflects on that for a bit. And then he's forced to turn around. And when he turns around, he realizes there's, there's a fire and it hurts his eyes. But he says, well, after a bit, he becomes used to looking at the fire. And he realizes that between the people and the fire... There are puppets that are being moved and that the characters he's been seeing his whole life are shadows of these puppets. And he kind of gets used to that and begins to see that, but that's not the end. He realizes that he is in a cave and his helper comes again and drags him. He doesn't want to go. He's really having a good time. The fact that he knows that these are puppets and sees the fire and the fire is warm and he really likes it there. But his helper drags him out of the cave, <clears throat> drags him out up to the top and forces him to look at a pool of water. And in it, he sees a reflection of himself. And he also sees a reflection of a very bright light. And he thinks that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And he doesn't want to leave. He wants to stay there because it's so beautiful. But one more time, his helper helps him and forces him to look directly. And he sees the sun. And he realizes in that moment that that bright ball of fire in the air is indeed the source of the image on the pond and the fire and the shadow, and the people who are there. But that's not the end of the story, because then his helper drags him back into the cave, step by step, with his fighting and struggling and saying, no, I don't want to go back. And then he's locked back in with all of his fellows, watching the characters on the wall, and he tries to explain it. And of course, they don't understand. They think he's crazy. And so they label him as insane and keep talking about the characters on the wall. So this is the cave story from Plato's Republic. And that story changed my life in many ways. So is it a, is it a story you're familiar with, Connor? Thank you, Glenda, for that story. I wish that you had been teaching my freshman year philosophy course, and I could have heard that story the first time from you. And not, <laughs> not to say that my philosophy teacher wasn't excellent, because I have a deep love of philosophy uh, because of her work, but that was an amazing, wonderful rendition of such, such a cool story. Um, <laughs> And I have I have a thousand questions immediately. <laughs> um, wow. Well, I'd like I'd like to share three things about this story that really did change my life, and the ways in which it did, and then that may make your thousand questions ten thousand questions. 
Um, But one of the ways that it changed my life was that I, too, read it as a freshman in college. I was 18, reading the great books of the Western world and talking about them. So I went to a talking college where we there were no departments, there were no textbooks, there were no written tests, there were no lectures. We all picked up text and we read that text and sought to understand it together through asking questions. Wow. So freshman year were the Greeks, sophomore year were the Romans, junior year were the rationalists, so we read Kant, and senior year were the phenomenologists. And so in the science, we went from the pre-Socratic, Orem and others, through Einstein, and in mathematics, we went from Euclid to Hilbert and literature and philosophy in each of those places. And so that story in Plato set the frame for that journey as that journey has set the frame for the rest of my life of work and curiosity. So that's one of the reasons is that it was so much a part of that awakening experience that we all have the first year that we're away from home and thinking about things that others have thought about before. Um, Then there were two other lessons really that I learned from it and also the rest of my practice at St. John's. One of them was humility, like never to be convinced that what I know is the final truth. Always to think that there is possibly another and greater truth that I'm not yet seeing. And so that humility has put me in inquiry throughout as I was teaching physics, as I was an entrepreneur, as I've been developing this field of study, theory and practice, um, always curious about what it is that I'm not seeing. And then the last thing is a kind of skepticism about, When you tell me that something's the final thing, I'm not likely to believe it. (laughs) So there's a kind of skepticism, and sometimes it comes out as curiosity. Other times it comes out as impatience with arrogance. But those patterns really are ones that have shaped my work, whatever I've been doing and wherever I've been. So what did you learn from the cave well i think every every freshman has that aha moment with the cave um and and you hit on a word that i talked about a lot in the last conversation um that i'm not surprised comes up a lot when we talk about stories that changed our life um that humility and we talked a lot last time about that ego um, about knowing that what I see is true because I see it. Um, and it must be true because it's right there in front of me. <clears throat> and accepting that a lot of times we are sitting there in that row in the cave, looking at what's being projected on the wall, being asked to accept it as the whole truth um, without asking questions. Um, and so, yeah, that humility really really stuck with me i think 
what I what I notice about your version, which I don't remember from the previous kind of tellings or readings of the story, is the struggle, um, and that was I think your your first point of of reflection, and I I loved it because I immediately got the image of this first this freshman student who comes into the university and thinks, well, I've I've passed all high school, I've made it into into St. John's or University of Kansas or wherever, and now I'm ready to take on the world. And then you get dragged out of your high school frame of mind and said, no, everything you learned was wrong. Relearn it. Um, and then, especially in, in your structure, where the, ne the very next year you sit down at the beginning of the year and they say, all of that Greek, Greek philosophy, well, we're going to drag you out of that cave and plunk you into the next one. Um, so you had this really graduated journey. Um, which is the element of your story, which either I've forgotten or or was lost in in the readings that I've heard that I just love about um, how you've set it up. And then, yeah, that that skepticism, um, you know, and that resentment of being in the cave at the end of the story and telling everyone else, no, 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 like you, you haven't seen what I've seen, you haven't been outside, you, you know, you've got to go see it, it's wonderful, um, the cave will never be the same, and then everyone else saying like, no, you're, you're a fool, um, you know, so, so that moment of being surrounded by, you know, from that hero's perspective, insanity, um, and being labeled insane, but feeling like you're the one who's actually seen the truth, yeah. Um, that's a moment that I have all the time. Yeah. Connor, there are two things that I learned from that. You know, it's quite interesting. And um, on the one hand, at the time, I thought that the person who was chained again was resentful and angry and um, kind of screaming into the wind. But what I learned was that maybe that's not what was happening. And the way that I have lived that truth is that I feel absolutely committed to sharing what I know, absolutely committed, and totally unsurprised that people don't get the whole thing. If they get a part of it, I celebrate. If they want to listen and are curious, I celebrate, but never the expectation that someone else is going to understand in its complete complexity, what I see and what I understand, that it just isn't going to happen. And so that releases me to celebrate whatever it is that people do see and share. Um, and so I, that was a lesson that I've learned through my life. It didn't come to me when I heard the story at 18. I saw the other thing at 18. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that humility you know you you put it at the center of your of your three items um and i've had some discussions recently about how to order lists and i think in this case the humility in between the journey and the skepticism is really important because indeed there is a lot of kind of reflective analysis that goes on when we put ourselves in the place of this character especially at the end of the story um because my first thought was yeah this yelling into the wind and angry and then my second thought, and I wonder how this is influenced by reading new IPCC report that comes out, um, is that the hero becomes yells for a few minutes and then <clears throat> becomes distraught and just just gives up. It says, "Well, mm. you know, that's mm. the end, and I'm the only one who's going to see the downfall as it comes because um, mm. the rest are here watching the screen." But I, I mean, I'm not sure. I would love to have a time machine 
of course, and uh, some kind of universal translator to go back and, and discuss this um, in the ancient halls and kind of get that first perspective on on what they thought and, and what was going through their minds. Yeah, I think we need to remember that Socrates drank the hemlock. <laughs> I think we need to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... So I'm curious about the the picture of ego as you talk about it mm -hmm. and self as the definition of truth. Um, were you proposing that as true in your previous conversation or were you critiquing that as a stance? What was that about? So I think the, the previous conversation was definitely very much rooted in perspective and the idea that if you want to tell a story from someone's perspective, you can. Um, and that we should always remind ourselves that the narratives that we are consuming, also the ones that we are producing for ourselves to consume are from perspectives that we have selected. And so we need to be very careful about what perspectives we choose to kind of tell ourselves. And Zina, my friend, um, is really stretching out and trying to actually tell as many perspectives as possible from one story. So it's, I think, the the avoidance of, you know, it's really the embracing of that humility. Um, a, a little bit at the exception of, at the expense of that uh, skepticism. Right, because you say, well, we're just going to tell all the stories that we could tell, um, and not judge them based on truthiness or or some other metric of, well, this is how it happened. I think, um, and so indeed, actually, kind of removing that idea of truth from our judgment and saying, well, this is just what's what could happen or what could have happened, um, because that's how stories work. Yeah, that. Um, it's so interesting because my perspective is totally opposite to that. <clears throat> and this too, I learned from Plato, right? That even though we have many stories and all the stories are valuable, all the stories are valuable because they move us closer to seeing something that is true. And that the truth depends on all those stories and so we must hear them all <clears throat> and as many perspectives as we possibly can but still that is a means toward an end of moving toward perfection and so holding this tension of there is a, a directional path for mankind for me and for you and for us <clears throat> it's not a set point but it's a directional tendency that we should make. And at the same time, there's a multiplicity of valuable perspectives. If you collapse in either of those directions, I think you lose that tension, which is the creative force. So to collapse in one way is dogma, to say that the perfection as I know it is the, you know, is it the final thing? So you don't want to fall in there. On the other hand, to say every story is equal, any story is equal, I'm just going to collect them and collect them and collect them, 
ends up in a kind of chaotic, what mathematicians call the Red Queen. And so there's um, nothing to hold on to, nothing to base practice on, nothing to base my own choices on, nothing beyond my own um, personal history and indulgence, <clears throat> the characters I see on the wall. Um, and so that standing in that tension between the two, I think is the lesson that we get from complexity science. I think traditionally the positivist perspective was there is one truth and I'm going to know what it is. And certainly Plato is that radical idealist. Yeah. <clears throat> the 20th century, we went toward the constructivist ideal about, well, there's no way to tell. There's yours, there's mine. Let's agree to disagree. Maybe even as social constructivists, we can come together and find some normative truth that will carry us forward. But there's a kind of nihilism in that perspective, which late 20th century philosophers began to say, you know, that's not really getting us where we need to be. <laughs> so what will get us where we need to be? And it's at that tension, that intersection, where people like Adorno and Habermas and others looked for a way that you could live in this kind of practical, generous idealism almost. Yeah, I think when when I hear your description, you know, you're, I, I immediately got this I, image in my mind of, of trying to walk a, walk a tightrope between the, the chaotic Red Queen on one side and the dogmatic Pope on the other. Um, and you're, you know, we are on that path in, in the middle. Um, and so how, I mean, we've, we've talked about how Plato's journey helps in looking at our stories and our perspective um, to kind of get that path on an individual level. Um, but I know a lot of your work and a lot of the stuff you do with stories is also at a bigger, like you talked about these intractable problems at huge scales. So how does this story, I mean, I think maybe the answer is obvious, but how does this story kind of influence your view on these huge issues um, that feel really, you know, like they're not moving at all. Like we don't, we can't get that push um, that maybe there's too many perspectives in all different directions and we're kind of slipping over that side of the hill. Mm. That's, that's a great question. And I think you have to move forward um, to stories of Mandelbrot to see how it is that I see that. So uh, Mandelbrot was a 20th century mathematician who recognized that there were certain mathematical processes that would generate objects that were what he called fractal. And they have lots of characteristics and they're really interesting in the world of complexity. But one thing that has helped me recognize, kind of scale up the picture of the cave, is um, to understand that at a smaller scale, there's a pattern, there's a relationship. So the cave is the experience of one man. <clears throat> but in a fractal, that same pattern is repeated at multiple scales. So even the large scale has the same patterns as a single man in the cave. Um, the classic example is broccoli to see what a fractal looks like. So you have a piece of broccoli 
it's broccoli. You break it off, it's broccoli. You break it off, it's broccoli. The human system example is culture. <clears throat> so if you're living in a culture of individualistic perspective, then you're going to find corporations that are individualistic and defensive. You're going to find families that are individuals that are systems that are across the board and that patterns and complex systems reflect and replicate at all different scales. So that was the story that came from Mandelbrot. And when I bring that into the cave, what I see is that <clears throat> at the largest scale, the human race is at some stage along that journey. Maybe we are chained and looking at character shadows on the wall. Maybe we're gloriously basking in the fire. Maybe we're struggling to stay in the cave. Maybe we're admiring ourselves in the water. And maybe we're staring straight into the sun. But wherever we are along that journey, our job is to get to the next step, wherever we are. So when I work with clients, when I work with wicked issues, my question always is, where are they in their journey of discovery? What is it that they see? What is it that they know? And what is the challenge that is going to be the spur for them to move to the next stage? My job isn't to tell them about the sun. My job is to find out where they are on their journey and what is the next step that they can take toward the sun and to help them along that step. That's my job. Oh, I think that is a perspective that a lot of scientists um, could could think about more. Um, because I see a lot of sun, sun stories coming out, you know. Um, that what How's I that working for them? Well, I think a lot of it comes back to that individualist society um, that you mentioned, that for them individually, it might be working quite well um, because they've written books and given talks and published papers and become famous. Um, but if we scale out that fractal problem from the individual to this community, we start to, we start to see, the, see the, the stumbling blocks. Um, but I wanted to flip it around because you gave me uh, a perfect... A perfect question uh, that I will I will pry a little bit um, with your your hobby horse that you've given us. You said that you ask a lot of people um, that you meet in your journey where they are currently in this setup of the cave and what are their next challenges that they see to overcome. So I'm wondering if you have just off the top of your head from your current mood. Um, or current feeling about any number of issues, where you feel you are in the in the journey, and what challenges you are trying to overcome now, professionally or personally, or um, you know, what's the next hill to climb? Well, that's a great question. Um, the one that comes to mind is about racism, um, and we look at. The current pattern is the thing that both says where we are and what the potential is for moving forward. And so we believe that the tools and models that we have in HSD, the way that we approach practice and understanding and interaction, we believe that those will be very useful and are very useful 
encountering institutional individual racism. We have lots of people in our network who use them that way. They're very open and inquiring, very culturally sensitive. That's great. And our community of 900 people is 10% people of color, 20% people from outside the North America, 50% men, 50% women, a little fewer men, but pretty equal in gender. Um, and so why is that? If our models and methods and tools are so fit for countering racism, why is it that we're such a homogeneous community? And so that's our question at this moment. We're doing a variety of things as a community to address that. I'm doing many things as an individual to address that. Um, and we want to understand it. But the even more important thing is that we want to be able to act upon that and to move toward perfection, whatever that looks like. Um, so that's one really serious question. And it's, it's a question of a certain flavor in the United States. It's a question of a different flavor in Germany. It's a question of a different flavor in South Africa. It's a question of a different flavor in each place where we are. And so one of the things that has been fascinating about that is that we need, we as citizens of this culture in the U.S. have to look at that in a particular way and be open and to learn from the ways that people in South Africa look at that same question. And so that diversity of opinion, that diversity of perspective is really what's setting a frame for us to find the next level of understanding and action. So racism is one. Uh, certainly sustainability is a second and sustainability in all the different ways that it's talked about where social justice is a sustainability issue where the environment is a sustainability issue where the economic capitalist patterns are a sustainability issue um, where even the ways that we think and talk about things are sustainability issues um, to go circle back a bit to our earlier conversation. A human race that thinks that those two extremes are the only way to be, that is not sustainable. If we're a human race that thinks there's one answer and it's got to be mine, or if it, we're a human race that thinks there's no answer and it doesn't matter, neither of those stands is sustainable. The only sustainability is going to lie someplace within that tension. And it's... Um, some people talk about the edge as if it's a single line. We think that it's a whole space within which we move. So in any moment, you're recognizing what the world is needing, what you understand, what the passions are, and moving in a different direction. So it's this n-dimensional space in which we're moving based on what we see and know. Um, so sustainability is an issue we're trying to think and talk about it in that way. Um, those are really the two, of course, political authoritarianism and capitalism. 
are two perennial issues for us in our current condition. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of this, what you said about sustainability, it also really rings with with the work that I tried to do. Because yeah, as a as a storyteller and as someone who frets over the little words sometimes, I like to ask people, yeah, what does sustainability really mean? And and I totally agree with that space. And that's why I think that your your cave story works so well because it's not a necessarily even I would say that often it's not necessarily a story with an end. I, I can admit I can easily envision this character forgetting what they've experienced and then having to be dragged out of the cave again to start over that process. And so I think, you know, that, that circularity, the sustainability, um, and then yeah, this, this Mandelbrot, this, this fractal that you just keep going and you think it's the end. And wow, I've, I've dug as far as I can go. I'm at the bottom. And then you look and out of the corner of the eye, you see, no. I, I must keep going and and that's where you know and and I love your advice about finding this direction that we want to keep moving and then you know we, when you said on the on the topic of racism and that's something that I've personally been mulling over for many many years now and I'm starting to get closer to being able to act with understanding um and that's something that i really i think like you said it's the flavor right now and i hope that enough people are building up that awareness and understanding that we can start to have some of that next level action um because all of these issues that we've talked about today they are not fixable as fixable as they can be on the individual level and that's where you know, my despair kind of seeped in uh, when we were looking at the story of, oh, no, we're never going to make it because all of these other people are chained up. I am not. You know, it is not my choice. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's that humility again. <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, on the other side of it, um, that uh, slightly nihilistic uh, voice from Alan Watts pops into the back of my head and says, you know, why are you worried about that? everything crumbles everything falls and something new will grow in its place and don't get too hung up on that either um which i think is another good point to kind of see in the cave and how easily those illusions of of knowledge and truth are are melted away um by somebody who just simply says yeah come with me i'll show you something better um <laughs> and so this is quite the quite the journey that you've been on um and quite the journey that you you are still working on and i'm so glad to be able to share this conversation and all of our other conversations with you um mm. i have a whole coaster here of notes because for some reason i didn't have paper in front of me <laughs> i'm so impressed by your you know i i recognized i would say probably half of the names that that you shot off at some point and i realized oh i should have known all of those because I've probably had to read the papers in my complexity courses. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of those reminders as well. Uh, well, and it's been fun to be in the field of complexity because it too is an unfinished work and recognizes it's an unfinished work. And so um, 
living and swimming in this space that has so many edges and none of them complete. All growth edges all around. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for the conversation today. Um, you have anything else to add before I, I let you on to the rest of your day? Just one little thing is to say that my life's work is to introduce this journey to other people. Not that their journey will be mine, but to open the door for their journeys. And so the training that we do at the Institute, the Adaptive Action Labs, the consulting, the coaching, all of that is around inviting people, diverse people from where they are, onto the journey that's right for them of discovery and exploration. And so I would invite people to join, to come to our website at www.hsdinstitute.org and just dig around and see what this journey looks like for you. And many thanks, Connor. This has been great fun. Oh, thank you, Glenda. And I will also plug uh, the HSD website. It's great. That's On there is a video of Glenda that helped to spark uh, my request. So I, I suggest you guys go out and find this one um, and see all of the great resources they have. Okay. Thank you, dear. Thank you. From the Dutch International Storytelling Center, this has been Disc Radio. This episode was edited and produced by Connor McMullen, with outro music by Boomy Goldson. Please tune in next time for more stories. Yeah, I believe it was there, and I had thought I should go back and reread the cave before today, and I didn't, so it was coming from memory. So it could have been a very romanticized, perverted, 50 years later memory, but we'll see. <laughs>